Section twenty five of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter eighteen, section two. Mr. W. B. Yeats, his poetry. It is distinctly surprising to find Mr. Yeats compared to Milton and Jeremy Taylor, and Mr. Forrest Reed, who makes the comparison, does not ask us to apply it at all points. There is a remoteness about Milton's genius, however, an austere and rarefied beauty to which Mr. Reed discovers certain likenesses in the work of Mr. Yeats. Mr. Yeats is certainly a little remote. He is so remote that some people regard his work with mixed feelings, as a rather uncanny thing. The reason may partly be that Mr. Yeats is not a singer in the ordinary tradition of poets. His poems are incantations rather than songs. They seem to call for an order of priests and priestesses to chant them. There are one or two of his early poems, like Down by the Sally Garden, that might conceivably be sung at a fair, or even at a ballad concert. But as Mr. Yeats has grown older, he has become more and more determinedly the magician in his robes. Even in his prose, he does not lay aside his robes. It is written in the tones of the sanctuary. It is prose for worshippers. To such an extent is this so, that many who do not realise that Mr. Yeats is a great artist cannot read much of his prose without convincing themselves that he is a great humbug. It is easy to understand how readers accustomed to the rationalism of the end of the century refuse to take seriously a poet who wrote spooky explanations of his poems, such as Mr. Yeats wrote in his notes to The Wind Among the Reeds, the most entirely good of his books. Consider, for example, the note which he wrote on that charming, if somewhat perplexing poem, The Jester. I dreamed, writes Mr. Yeats, I dreamed this story exactly as I have written it, and dreamed another long dream after it, trying to make out its meaning, and whether I was to write it in prose or verse. The first dream was more a vision than a dream, for it was beautiful and coherent, and gave me a sense of illumination and exultation that one gets from visions, while the second dream was confused and meaningless. The poem has always meant a great deal to me, though, as is the way with symbolic poems, it has not always meant quite the same thing. Blake would have said, the authors are in eternity, and I am quite sure they can only be questioned in dreams. End quote. Why, even those of us who count Mr. Yeats as one of the immortals while he is still alive, are inclined to shy at a claim at once so solemn and so irrational as this. It reads almost like a confession of witchcraft. Luckily, Mr. Yeats's commerce with dreams and fairies and other spirits has not all been of this evidential and disputable kind. His confessions do not convince us of his magical experiences, but his poems do. Here we have the true narrative of Fairyland, the initiation into otherworldly beauty. Here we have the magician crying out against all things uncomely and broken, all things worn out and old, and attempting to invoke a new, or an old, and more beautiful world into being. The wrong of unshapely things is a wrong too great to be told. He cries, 
and over against the unshapely earth he sets up the happy townland of which he sings in one of his later and most lovely poems it would be easy to write a prose paraphrase of the happy townland but who is there who can permanently resist the spell of this poem especially of the first verse and its refrain there's many a strong farmer whose heart would break in two if he could see the townland that we are writing to boughs have their fruit and blossoms at all times of the year rivers are running over with red beer and brown beer an old man plays the bagpipes in a golden and silver wood queens their eyes blue like the ice are dancing in a crowd the little fox he murmured oh what of the world's bane the sun was laughing sweetly the moon plucked at my rain but the little red fox murmured oh do not pluck at his rain his riding to the townland that is the world's bane you may interpret the little red fox and the sun and the moon as you please but is it not all as beautiful as the ringing of bells but mr yeats in his desire for this other world of colour and music is no scorner of the everyday earth his early poems especially as mr reed points out give evidence of a wandering observation of nature almost wordsworthian in the stolen child which tells of a human child that is enticed away by the fairies the magic of the earth that the child is leaving is the means by which mr yeats suggests to us the magic of the world into which it is going as in the last verse of the poem away with us he's going the solemn-eyed he'll hear no more the lowing of the calves on the warm hillside or the kettle on the hob sing peace into his breast or see the brown mice bob round and round the oatmeal chest for he comes the human child to the waters and the wild with a fairy hand in hand from a world more full of weeping than he can understand there is no painting here no adjective work but no painting or adjectives could better suggest all that the world and the loss of the world mean to an imaginative child than this brief collection of simple things to read the stolen child is to realize that mr yeats brought a new and delicate music into literature and that his genius had its birth in a sense of the beauty of common things even when in his early poems the adjectives seem to be chosen with the too delicate care of an artist as when he notes how in autumnal solitudes arise the leopard-coloured trees his observation of the world around him is but proved the more conclusively the trees in autumn are leopard-coloured though a poet cannot say so without becoming dangerously ornamental what i have written so far however might convey the impression that in mr yeats's poetry we have a child's rather than a man's vision at work one might even gather that he was a passionless singer with his head in the moon this is exactly the misunderstanding which has led many people to think of him as a minor poet the truth is mr yeats is too original and as it were secret a poet to capture all at once the imagination that has already fixed the outlines of its kingdom amid the masterpieces of literature his is a genius outside the landmarks there is no prototype in shelley or keats any more than there is in shakespeare for such a poem as that which was at first called briasal the fisherman but is now called simply the fisherman although you hide in the ebb and flow of the pale tide when the moon has set 
the people of coming days will know about the casting out of my net and how you have leaped times out of mind over the little silver cords and think that you are hard and unkind and blame you with many bitter words there in music as simple as a fable of aesop mr yeats has figured the pride of genius and the passion of defeated love in words that are beautiful in themselves but trebly beautiful in their significances beautifully new again is the poem beginning i wander by the edge which expresses the desolation of love as it is expressed in few modern poems i wander by the edge of this desolate lake where the wind cries in the sedge until the axle break that keeps the stars in their round and hands hurl in the deep the banners of east and west and the girdle of light is unbound your breast will not lie by the breast of your beloved in sleep rhythms like these did not exist in the english language until mr yeats invented them and their very novelty concealed for a time the passion that is immortal in them but it is by now a threadbare saying of wordsworth that every great artist has himself to create the taste by which he is enjoyed but it is worth quoting once more because it is especially relevant to a discussion of the genius of mr yeats what previous artist for example had created the taste which would be prepared to respond imaginatively to such a revelation of a lover's triumph in the nonpareil beauty of his mistress as we have in the poem that ends i cried in my dream o women bid the young men lay their heads on your knees and drown their eyes with your hair or remembering hers they will find no other face fair till all the valleys of the world have been withered away one may doubt at times whether mr yeats does not too consciously show himself an artist of the aesthetic school in some of his epithets such as cloud pale and dream dimmed his too frequent repetition of similar epithets makes woman stand out of his poems at times like a decoration as in the pictures of rossetti and burne jones rather than in the vehement beauty of life it is as if the passion in his verse were again and again entangled in the devices of art if we take his love poems as a whole however the passion in them is at once vehement and beautiful the world has not yet sufficiently realized how deep is the passion that has given shape to mr yeats's verse the wind among the reeds is a book of love poetry quite unlike all other books of love poetry it utters the same moods of triumph in the beloved's beauty of despair of desire of boastfulness of the poet's immortality that we find in the love poetry of other ages but here are new images almost a new language sometimes we have an image which fills the mind like the image in some little chinese lyric as in the poem he reproves the curlew o curlew cry no more in the air or only to the waters of the west because your crying brings to my mind passion dimmed eyes and long heavy hair that was shaken out over my breast there is enough evil in the crying of the wind the passion of loss this sense of the beloved as of something secret and far and scarcely to be attained like the holy grail is the dominant theme of the poems even in the song of the wandering angus 
that poem of almost playful beauty which tells of the little silver trout that became a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air what a sense of long pursuit of a life's quest we get in the exquisite last verse a verse which must be among the best known of mr yeats's writings after the lake isle of innisfree and had i the heavens embroidered cloths though i am old with wandering through hollow hills and hilly lands i find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon the golden apples of the sun this is the magic of fairyland again it seems little distant from human passions it is a wonderful example of mr yeats's genius for transforming passion into elfin dreams the emotion is at once deeper and nearer human experience in the later poem called the folly of being comforted i have known readers who profess to find this poem obscure to me it seems a miracle of phrasing and portraiture i know no better example of the nobleness of mr yeats's verse and his incomparable music end of section twenty five read by Timothy Ferguson.